0: So the system, because it's so beleaguered, it, 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 it's trying to avoid helping people most of the time. It's trying to work out why they can't provide care. That's what triage systems do. They, you know, like on a battlefield, they're trying to get rid of the people that they've given up on sort of thing. You know, That's what's happening in our public mental health system every day, these poor people seeking help and also poor people trying to provide it, but with a Sophie's Choice.
1: Welcome to the latest episode of Anything But Square. Even before the coronavirus, It was predicted that loneliness would be Australia's next public health crisis. What was once only a possibility now seems inevitable, but there's still hope. The discussion held and recorded in 2019 at the Deacon Edge Theatre, Fed Square, about how to prevent, cope with and cure loneliness has been ongoing for some time. In partnership with the Anglican Diocese of Melbourne, join us with a panel of mental health experts, including Australian of the Year and founder of Headspace, Professor Patrick McGorry, as well as Helen Page. Head of Community Aged Care for the Brotherhood of St Lawrence, Anglican Archbishop Philip Freer and former ABC host John Cleary. Please, grab a cuppa and enjoy.
2: An Australian psychological journal last year suggested loneliness could be Australia's next public health crisis. Also last year, Britain's Conservative Government took the unusual step of appointing a minister for loneliness. So. What's going on? Is this a sudden flare up of a disease that's been lurking in our midst for many years? Is it a genuine crisis? Or simply another means for a few academics to milk more money from the public teeth for questionable research? Well, Britain's decision came following the findings of a government commission to examine the issue. Their work indicated loneliness is far more common and potentially far more dangerous than publicly understood. It affects up to one in three individuals. It can damage your brain, your immune system, and can lead to depression and suicide. Loneliness can also increase your risk of dying prematurely as much as smoking can, and even more so than obesity. So, if there is such a crisis, How is the condition defined? Who is affected by it? What are the causes and what may be the remedies? Professor Patrick McGorry, is there an emerging crisis of loneliness? How serious is it? And how do you define the term? I mean, aren't some people merely happy with their solitude? I
0: think some people are happy with their solitude. There are certainly certain types of people that uh, thrive on it in a way. I mean, we used to say um, that uh, someone who's, who is, is uh, well suited to be a lighthouse keeper would, would uh, be horrified to be in a marketing department, for example. So so there are definitely niches for people that, that suit them. But <clears throat> I think the stats you've just quoted show that the problem is, is real. It's getting worse. Um, there does seem to be evidence showing that you know however you measure it it's probably a little bit difficult to measure it actually um, it does seem to be becoming a m- much more of a problem in the last sort of maybe 20 years or so um, defining it I mean there are probably a few different different definitions maybe Helen's got a few too but but um, <clears throat> the ones that I quite like were there are three types of loneliness one is intimate loneliness which really involves whether you've got intimate relationships and that might be anywhere between one and five people who you can really confide in at a deeper level. Then there's relational loneliness, which is a slightly wider circle of support. Um, And um, then there's collective loneliness, which is a much wider sort of group membership of of different say sporting organizations or clubs or or things like that. And and the basic definition of loneliness seems to be a perceived lack of, or a perceived social, social isolation. So if you perceive it to be like that, it's very much a subjective thing. And the final thing I'd say is that it's not the number of relationships so much, it's the, it's the quality of them that, that people really sort of uh, uh, go to when they're, they're thinking of this, this idea. Yeah.
2: The subjectivity of it is, is part of, the, part of the, the problem in making it a, a yeah. public issue. That is, is it societal, yeah. is it personal, is it what? Helen Page, in, in your experience um, from years of practice in the field, Do you see evidence of such a a crisis? And what, for you, are the presenting circumstances?
3: Well, I think that um, it's always been evident in the residential care setting that our clients are potentially lonely, and that's a reflection of the many losses that people have experienced before they find themselves in. Residential care, so there's a lot of reasons why they're they're already isolated. But I've also seen on the flip side where clients come into residential care and flourish because they're not alone at home anymore. So one of the things that does concern me is that we're very um, keen to keep people at home longer, and that that's a, been a, a definite policy decision that's been driven. Um, and most of us would like to think that we'd like to always stay at home but we do see many clients who are um, potentially disadvantaged by that as well because of the loneliness so
2: yeah. is it you've worked particularly with aged care and see it presenting there but the, the brotherhood works across the field do you see it in in other? sector, can you sector it? Can you say, look, there are particular issues with aged care, there are particular issues with other cohorts?
3: Well, the Brotherhood works across um, many parts of our community that are vulnerable and potentially disadvantaged. So um, that might be uh, culturally diverse people, um, asylum seekers, um, unemployed and youth, so, and, and aged care. And I think within each of those, uh, groups of society, there'd be different reasons why people would be vulnerable to feeling lonely.
2: There's been a particular focus um, in Australia over the last couple of years on suicide rates, particularly, are saying, men and young people. There's concerns about is this reflected with the loneliness thing as well? Is it...
3: Well, Patrick might be better to answer that one. Um, yeah,
2: I think, it, look...
0: The rising suicide toll is is a real, that is a national crisis, it really is. Um, 3,000 people plus every year. Um, I was listening to the radio this morning and they're talking about the veterans, 30 veterans at least a year. So there are subgroups of high risk. Young people, it's it's getting worse. Despite the fact that we have started to build a system of care for young people, you mentioned Headspace, well, that's like a thin green line, but we're seeing very large numbers of young people coming in with much more complex problems than can be dealt with in a primary care system. They need much more specialised and also more sustained care, and it has to be of of the quality. You know, coming back to this topic today, I mean, you have to feel a real human connection with the person that, or the people that are trying to help you, and the system is almost... it's become, at least, especially the state system, it's really imploded. That's why we've got a a Royal Commission in Victoria. Um, You know, the state system is not capable of providing that humane care, despite the best efforts of the people working in it. I mean, there's very amazing people trying to make a completely broken system work, but it's that human connection, that kind of sustained human connection has gone missing, basically, which is the essence of psychiatry and the essence of mental health care. so that, I think that's one of the big reasons. There are lots of social factors driving suicide, social and economic factors, but the final common pathway is despair, hopelessness and despair. If you cannot actually provide the life-saving care to the people at that point, then they die. They die in big numbers. Hundreds of the people that die every year have already tried to get help from the system.
4: Uh, hi, thanks. I'd just like to offer a question and an example. Um, mm-hmm that spans generations and personalities. And I think for those of us who might catch the train to work or the tram, the bus can relate. Nothing for me epitomises the irony between having a sense of belonging and connectedness as ingredients um, for mental health. And when you see this on the train, everyone seems miserable. (laughs) And we've got noise cancelling headphones on, we're all on our phones, but does anyone on the panel see potential in this kind of space? To use it for those who might be willing to do it um, as a place to improve or connect or offer some kind of uh, solution. (laughs) Thanks. Much of our society these
5: days uh, in society people are looking for reward and their reward is dollar-based and in that respect I lament the um, lack of volunteers within our community. Um, Much of the work that the church does, much of the work that community does, um, relies upon a vast team of volunteers, but those volunteers are falling by the wayside. It's not normal for young families these days to seriously consider being a volunteer for something. And those who are volunteering are getting older and less able to do um, the work that's required um, for nothing except to have a good fuzzy feeling inside that you're helping somebody else and you're not being paid for it.
3: Um, I, I think volunteering has been in my mind a lot while I've been considering this topic. I, six months or so ago, decided to volunteer with another not for profit <coughs> organisation and was so thrilled with the opportunity to engage with quite different people to those that I'd normally get to interact with. And I was quite impressed to see that whilst probably two thirds of the volunteers that I work with there are retired people, there were also young people and much younger people than myself and I was quite gratified by that, And it strikes me that it's very much a two-way street and it could be part of the solution to mm. this problem that um, people who um, volunteer and and they do get incredible reward and, and a sense of connectedness mm. and belonging, and I, I certainly do. I, I volunteer with Fair Share um, in um, Abbotsford and and th- I, I think that that is one possible solution to to some of this. To the, to the lady's um, question up the back, I came in on the train today myself and every time I catch public transport, I'm, I'm I'm quite excited by it. I'm a bit of a people watcher and I like the graffiti on the train lines and so I'm, I'm never really on a device but everybody else in the train seems to be. And I was thinking this morning, I was remembering back to the Life Be In It campaign that we're probably all old enough to Mm. to remember that, I don't know when it was, the 70s? 70s. And I was remembering the Life Be In It campaign and I wondered if we actually need a Put Your Device Down campaign um, (laughs) and and we'd we'd all enjoy our public transport travels a bit more.
6: Well, I think there's opportunity of making a lot of spaces uh, richer spaces. And um, it's it's good we put attention to that because we've got people who are creative, who are designers, who uh, un- understand the kind of things that would interest people that would actually um, mean, you know, could you make uh, a train, carriage, a bus, a tram, a rich, a rich environment where you really uh, felt the desire to uh, interact and connect? I'm sure that's possible, but I don't think that's, uh, you know, so. Th- maybe we need creative people you might be one of them who can (laughs) help make that 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 environment rich because i think if if it was the case it would really uh it would really catch on people would think this is a much better way of spending a half an hour or an hour than um just in something which doesn't feel very rich and even even on you know despite the the best efforts the the textures the the smell uh, the you know the the surfaces of a lot of our uh, even public transport they're not very Aesthetically pleasing, they're very, yeah, um, uh, you know, they're very sterile. So it's no surprise people want to enrich the space with um, some personal devices.
2: Archbishop Philip Freer, uh, from your perspective as a leader of one of the major social institutions, are you concerned that there is, in fact, a wider dimension here that it's not simply a clinical issue that? that may have something to do with the nature of our society, the shift in the nature of our, our social relationships, the way we're dealing with our society. Like, over the past couple of generations, we seem to have moved into a world of, of unprecedented individualism, consumerism, the promise of, of boundless happiness with the next fashion purchase or the next course in personal empowerment. Yet, at the same time, we're experiencing an increasingly lonely world of unravelling communities and families? Um, Is is this, for example, the apotheosis of uh, there's no such thing as society?
6: Yeah, John, I think uh, most of us could probably do the the mental experiment of how we, in a way, because I think think, we're we're small, we're finite, we're mortal, but there's a different sense of what that feels like when you're in the immensity of nature on your own to when you're in, say, uh, an immensely busy city or in a subway uh, train in New York or a tube in London or a, uh, even a, a crowded uh, tram or a, a train here in Melbourne. There's, there's something in, in a way, if we're alone in nature, we, we are kind of open to things. You know, we are, our senses are open and it, it sometimes is a wonderfully transforming and rich experience within us to have a sense of our smallness Uh, compared to something great, and Christians, of course, would understand that to be the greatness of creation, the transcendence of God, uh, finding a right place there. But I think there's something about the the shut-down character of often our life in society, because when you're... uh, You know, if you're on a a tube in London, say, you avoid eye contact. It seems to be one of the the great rules. I sometimes break and actually talk to people, and I find people talk back to me, which is shocking for the other people on these... uh, on these transport things, you know, they actually will have a conversation, but we, we get into this kind of shut down place, and I'm not I'm not a neural scientist, but I think that probably does something to our to the way we're wired. You know, we, we end up um, intentionally being in that very tense situation of, of shutting down, not interacting, uh, and probably there's a whole lot of anxiety that can build up in that place because you don't know what other people are doing. So there, there is there's something about us living the way we live. I think that is very different to um, perhaps experiences some of us have had or even how a generation or two before us lived.
2: Well, let me just continue that a a little further and I'll get each of us to comment on that. Um, Many social scientists talk these days about the fact that in the last two generations, we've gone through more, in, in the West particularly, we've gone through more um, transformation in our social structures than we have for the past 3,000 years. That is, we, we are actually deconstructing family. We're deconstructing, we're, the focus on individualism um, has actually began to change the, the way the fabric works, and that wider social issue is, is something we are simply not, have ignored the consequences of completely. Uh, Patrick McGorry.
0: Yeah, well, I think you know, um, I can remember my father's family and how many you know it was a large family, lots of cousins, and traditional families had that much more, uh, that uh, deeper and closer relationships. And now we've we, we've got these nuclear families that are dislocated from, you know, geographically or or in many ways from their their roots and their traditions. You know, um, one of the things that helps you. You know, I work with young people, So, young people growing up need what we call scaffolding around them to help them grow up. And if you don't have it, you know, if you're if you're a, a, a child in out of home care or a or few if, or if, you, um, if your family you know, disintegrates when you're growing up or um, you know that, that the, the scaffolding around children and young people growing up is much more fragile than it used to be um, under pressure. Um, other things in the scaffolding would be the educational system, the pathway to a secure vocation. Um, that was much more s- straightforward, you know, say, 30 or 40 years ago than it is now. You've got the gig economy and tremendous insecurity for young people. Um, on the other hand, the, the flip side is they've got a lot more freedom. So, so you know, there's the choices and the freedom is much greater, you could say. So maybe it's better, but the price of freedom is more mental ill health. That's what we see. Um,
2: A surfeit of choice.
0: Yeah, it's like people use terms like affluenza and these sort of terms, but that's sort of in the zone of what I'm talking about. The society has become much more complex and insecure. And also the values of the society seem to be degenerating. People feel that, you know, in the political leaders and and the collapse of of, uh, various institutions or lack of trust in institutions. So it's a much more, um, I I don't know, unstable and and, and insecure world, isn't it? And and the and the family and the traditional family structures and the cultures, you know, um, I was born in Ireland. So when I go back to Ireland, I still see a lot of, um, you know, um, of that traditional uh, sort of depth in that culture, which countries like Australia don't really have. They have it in in the multicultural sort of world, but they don't have it. it. It's it's sort of got lost a bit, I reckon.
2: Helen, are there there particular ways in which you... ..things that you'd nominate as being elements in the the people you see?
3: I think that for older people, uh, the adoption of technology or the rapid um, improvements in technology have been a double-edged sword. So for some people who are adopters of technology, it has allowed them to connect... Um, with each other and with family and you know when you think of what's possible with Skype and um, you know many many people have um, family living all over the world so it allows them to keep connected but for many older people who haven't adopted technology and perhaps can't even use a mobile phone it can be quite isolating so and the way we've adopted it throughout our society, we've replaced a lot of person-to-person interaction with technological interaction. So people would have been accustomed to going into the bank and withdrawing money. Now, you, and have you a know, conversation? And have a conversation and probably <clears throat> know a bit about the teller that, that, that they are served by. And now I see um, tellers taking o- older people out to the ATM and trying to show them how to use the ATM to... And, um, and many banks just don't have branches now. So, um, you know, the, the the interactions that people would have once had in their veggie shop and with the local butcher don't really happen now in a big impersonal supermarket and even going to pay bills at the post office. There's a lot of things, opportunities that older people don't have now that they would have... We've spoken a lot about young people and we've also spoken about um, aged care. And Helen, I'm interested in your perspective not on the people in your care, but the people working in that system. We spend a lot of our lives interacting with large organisations, and I'm interested in each of the panel's perspectives in the role of the organisation in (coughs) what can they tangibly do to create connectedness or create a sense of belonging throughout our working lives rather than at the start and at the end. I
7: was wondering if the panel could talk about people who are not lonely. (laughs) There's a bit of a fine line there. Um, A lot of people seem to just, look, it's uh, human nature or the nature of any animal species is to fit in. (coughs) And if you don't fit in, you become ostracized. Uh, A lot of people seem to be able to fit in either through just simply being concurrent, compliant, agreeable, Um, they won't rock the boat, The other end of the scale, you've got people who are not lonely, but work at it desperately to be not lonely. And and you've got people who... uh, Their narcissism, Machiavellianism, (laughs) um, psychopathy all comes out. So uh, a lot of politicians, for example. Um, (laughs) Well, you've got the ABC last week uh, who are trying to make uh, journalists um, a bunch of ratbags because, and and that's probably a more broader scale, which happens at a uh, more intimate scale in society. If you don't fit in, you become ostracised. Or if you're slightly different, you're not one of us. Um, If if you're intelligent and you're mixing with a bunch of people who are not so intelligent, they'll get rid of you. I was just wondering if you can talk about people who are, perhaps those sort of issues and people who are not so lonely
0: and how how they come about it. I think they're both really important questions, um, the first one is, is attracting a lot of attention actually, um, the World Economic Forum has got a, a mental health program for the first time and it's got, it's, it's quite a big thing, we, we have a contract with them around youth mental health but another bigger big area that they're focusing on is workplace mental health you know so you know Um, companies are starting to realize that 20% of their workers are not well from a mental health point of view at any given time. And, you know, they're not actually getting good value out of those workers. That's probably one of the drivers, you know. Um, But there probably is some concern for their workers as well. So um, rather than just the usual uh, tick-the-box employee assistance programs, you know, they're starting to really think about what would a healthy workplace be like, you know, and... um, uh, so this has got to do with, I suppose, connections at work and even the design of the workplace mm. and all sorts of stuff like that, and, and empowerment, I suppose, you know, those sorts of issues. Um, so that's a huge area, um, so it's good that that's come up. The other issue is um, a really important one, and if you think about it from a, a mental health or psychiatric point of view, um, there, are, there are different personality types, you know. I mean, you could label people, you know, as narcissistic or you know, antisocial or whatever you want to, use, whatever you want to do. But people have trays; they have, you know, it's like a paint paint box. You have, you know, a different sort of kaleidoscope of colours and a different person. So you might be, you might not reduce someone to say you've got a, you know, that personality or the, or, the, or or that or another personality. But but you can see that people are different. And therefore, different environments. We've talked a lot about the social the social world today, the wider society. But you know, it's the fit of the person with the society that, that's the thing. You know, like with my analogy of the lighthouse keeper, someone who's very comfortable being alone, you know, and doesn't mind, you know, and actually thrives on that, is well suited to being a lighthouse keeper, where you don't mix with many people. Um, and that, and, and that person might be very uncomfortable working in a busy, busy office, you know, when they're forced to interact. And people with mental illness, you know, often get to be like that. They have social anxiety and, and as a consequence of having the illness and, um, you know, particularly with long term schizophrenia, people are uncomfortable quite often with other people. So. But they could they could work if you find the right niche for them, you know. So, so it's very important to think about it that way. And then you've got, as you said, you know, power-seeking, you know, narcissistic people who tend to be, you know, hope there are no CEOs in the audience, but you know, CEOs of major organisations, and you know, um, or you know, not that they're all like that, but but that that that's yeah, that, that's a sort of a, a a personality type that suits that sort of role, if I can put it that way. Um, and I am one of those, so I better be careful here. <laughs> so, but but, but um, then you've got politicians who probably, you know, they're variable as well, but that there would be a certain personality type that would be fitting in there, and, and then there'd be librarians, and then, and then there'd be, you know, elite, elite sports people. And so personality is important to understand what kind of person you're dealing with. And, of course, at another level, every human being is is is, there, is an, a unique individual too. So there are types, but there is variation within the types too. So
2: can I say, in this context, pity the poor bureaucrat, because you seem to be saying that we've got all these complex <laughs> problems which which feed in on this. Yeah. Yet at the top, the bureaucrat is is forced to face competing budget constraints, but at the same time, there seems to be a lack of a, a coherent overview about what it is (coughs) we're looking to deal with here, whether it's clinical service to the individuals or (coughs) a way of our whole mental health strategy being an integrated whole rather than bits and pieces.
0: Yeah, well, politicians often just, you know, throw a few shekels at different aspects of the sector to keep them happy, you know, and stop them complaining. Um, rather than having a narrative about what they want to do. I mean, successful politicians, I think, actually say, right, I'm in for three years or I'm in for four years. These are the three things I'm going to change and do in that time, rather than just giving everybody 50 cents and and just keeping the status quo ticking over. There's gotta be like a a narrative, you know, which-
2: Is there a narrative available that has been recommended to government
0: in this? Case? Yeah, we, 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 this, this Royal Commission will show what the narrative actually is, you know. We, there will be a narrative, and it, it will be a lot to do with some of the things that we, we... You haven't talked about solutions yet, but within mental health, the idea of peer support, we found that very helpful amongst young people, and it's, a, it's becoming a thing within mental health care. It doesn't mean you replace expert clinicians, but you complement it with, you know, people with lived experience who are working alongside clinicians to help people recover and and it really helps with that sort of the loneliness aspect of it actually so so there are definitely there's a whole range of solutions if we could only get a public consensus and the money to actually implement them.
3: In the world of work that I'm from it's it's (coughs) incredibly important to care for the wellness of your workers if you're wanting them to give of themselves to our clients so it's something that, as a manager in the aged care world, has been really important to me. Um, and organisations like the Brotherhood invest in significantly. Um, I've got uh, two chaplains sitting over here. I know that, um, for them, it's very important to provide support um, to our workforce.
6: Yeah, I think cl- clarity about purpose, uh, being, um, being able to uh, achieve things within the purpose of an organisation, an organisation that is uh, relationally intelligent towards people who are are part of it and who work for it, um, I I think are all quite strong ingredients to having a good culture where people care about each other and want to see each other flourish.
2: Let me shift it slightly and go to the way in which the community is responding or the way in which our the resources that uh, are available in the community and general attitudes towards mental health. Some people would say, "Look, there's been a there's been a problem with mental health generally for years, and you could trace it back. And this is linked to the the, the loneliness <coughs> thing directly, to the way in which, from the 70s onward, there's this fashion of deinstitutionalisation of get people out of those big places where they were to get." It was almost described as though I was sort of locked up in this sort of mass incarceration. Has that hot, ha, is there is there an issue there with the way that governments have approached the issue of mental health and well-being that goes that can be traced back to that that phase? Yeah. Well, if you think about it, in the 19th century,
0: the mentally ill were. Um, it, was a, it was a well-intentioned movement to sort of build the asylums because otherwise they were going to be homeless or chained up in the back bedroom or, or, or even killed. You know, and that's, that is still happening in developing countries, in, in low-resource low countries. The, the seriously mentally ill, where there are no facilities, are just either killed, chained up in the backyard, or, or completely destitute and die. You know, so it's, it's a huge human rights issue in, in those countries. Um, so that was a good thing in the 19th century obviously, it became terrible, you know, in the 20th century that they became, you know, um, I trained in those in those hospitals, they I was very pleased to see the back of them because they were, you know, very, very um, damaging institutions by the end of it, you know, but the government, the Kennett government here, um, the governments all around the world got rid of them and, and, and promised to replace them with well funded, humane, biopsychosocial, you know, community mental health services. And they started off on the right foot, but then they completely lost the plot. State governments in Australia. And now we have a national scandal where only a fraction of the people with serious mental illness get access to care. The care is very, it's very poor quality. It's, it's, it's provided under desperate circumstances. It's not very therapeutic anymore compared to even 20 years ago. Um, and that, that the workforces are just completely exhausted and demoralized. and and so that is the situation that, of mainstream mental health care in this state. And that's why we have a Royal Commission. We've got a premier who's honest enough to admit that first person in the world to actually admit that, that, that this has failed. Um, and we, the Royal Commission, I hope will redesign it with the voices of the of the of the mentally ill and their families, you know, very strongly represented. So that's the situation. On the other hand, in Australia, we have a federal government too which has been tried to invest in federal, in mental health care from the primary level up. And they've made a few pieces of progress with that, with better access and with headspace and things like that. But it's, there's a huge bunch of people, hundreds of thousands of Australians in the middle between the emergency department and, and the GP who have nowhere to go. You know? And they are dying, their lives are being blighted and their loneliness is is one aspect of it. But there's a whole range of other problems. They die 15 to 20 years earlier than the general population, much worse than indigenous health. So this is the the reality. And I don't think the public realize that when they see Beyond Blue and they see awareness campaigns and they think, wow, isn't mental health going great? It's not.
2: Helen, the Brotherhood have been involved in this area. alongside its service provision, involved in the identification of these issues, for many, many years. It's the history of the Brotherhood. Do you track a similar path to what Patrick is outlining there with the way services have gone over the last...
3: Well, what we see is, um, in our aged care area, that that we are seeing people who have survived all of that um, fairly damaged and, and very vulnerable. And we seek to replace a lot of the losses that they've experienced. So, for many people, um, you'd be familiar with the the, um, the fact that people lose their friends, family, and supports through the progression of a, of a of an illness that's not well managed. And um, and many of our clients have had institutional childhoods, so they've they've started off on the back foot. So we we seek to really replace that. Um, um, by providing a, a safe community and, and meaningful connection and um, unconditional acceptance.
2: Are there programs being developed which have at their heart a realisation that things like loneliness are key, that connectedness and social relationships are the things that really make the difference and that you can structure programs to deal with that?
3: Yeah. So, um, you know, we've been talking in the aged care area for a, a number of years now about person-centred care and, and that's about um, honouring the essence of the person and not, not just providing food and, and lodging but to, mm. to really support their aspirations and needs and, and desires and interests and, and give a, a really good quality of life. So that, that's certainly something that the Brotherhood's about in all, across all of our programs.
8: I'd just like to highlight a point that Patrick McGorry made regarding the importance of early intervention with mental illness, uh, that it can change the course of things. I have an eight-year-old granddaughter who just the other day said to me, Granny, you'll never guess what we learned at school today. She said, we learned about the word boast. I said, gosh, darling, that's interesting. Um, I thought for an eight-year-old to have that sort of thing in school was wonderful. Well, I'm just wondering about the possibility of raising the question of loneliness uh, for children at school at an early age, and what age do you think this subject could be introduced into the education department? Because um, I believe that communication with our young people is vital. Uh, I feel that... um, (coughs) I've seen uh, depression and uh, despair and hopelessness uh, with a member of my family, uh, and I think that perhaps uh, we ignored uh, some of these things earlier on, uh, and perhaps with a combination of, of home life and parents being more observant and, and the education system supporting family uh, as well, we may have a little more chance of trying to combat what we are now facing with regard to loneliness. I
0: I guess it has to be at every level, and I'm glad you brought up schools, because um, the the state government actually, they are actually investing in in sort of health slash mental health in in schools, especially secondary schools. And and, um, you know, coming back to what John was saying before, I think it's fair to say that the young people you know, if they are trying to individuate from their parents, you know, their they're, they're, they're parents in adolescence are less accessible to them in a way um, to confide in, and, and if, they, if they need comforting or if they need someone to confide in, then they're, they're obviously becoming a less less likely to do that with a parent, you know. Um, and yet the peer group is, is, is highly unstable and unreliable, isn't it, in adolescence, and, and uh, you know, and it might be... hostile and bullying as well. So where do those young people actually go, you know, a teacher might be might be one one place if the teacher was, was, you know, I guess we can all remember teachers that we would have been able to confide in maybe, you know, maybe one out of hundreds. (laughs) But uh, but if not, then there there should be places in schools where you can actually go. You can actually train the peers in the schools to to actually take on these roles. You can can train some of the more senior students in listening skills and supportive responses. That's been done in schools in Sydney that I've seen. So definitely schools, um, I would say universities as well that's a highly that is a, a, a I just i work for a university but um, you know I've seen universities go bad I suppose uh, that their, their business model has has changed to they've been forced into a a profit driven you know thinking or commercial type thinking and the the pastoral care of the students probably never was that great but but it's it's certainly got worse i think in and and, um, and primary schools as well. You know, if you think back to primary school kids, like I think you, you mentioned an eight year old granddaughter. Daughter. Um, you know, I remember when I was that age, I mean, if you weren't happy, I was a very shy child. And if, if you were, you know, very anxious or stressed, who do you talk to? Who do you share that with? You know, um, probably your parents, if your parents are you know, in primary school, but if there was some problem with your parents or if you were, um, if your family didn't have time, they were working three jobs or something, you know, I mean, or if you're in out of home, out of home care in the States, your parent, you know, I mean, so I, I think what you brought up is really important for the earliest type of intervention. And then once the teachers, teachers identify kids all the time who are struggling and they've got nowhere to send them, they have headspace up to a point now, but then if it's more complex, there's, there's you know, and I work at Origin, we, we, we turn away three out of four teenagers and young people every single day from our triage system in the Western suburbs because we have not got the resources to respond and m- m- increasing numbers of those young people are dying. So, so every level of the system needs to be supported to make early intervention possible.
2: Can I ask one in, uh, informational observation? What's the timeframe for the Royal Commission and are you satisfied that its remit is broad enough to em- embrace the things you're talking yeah, about
0: yeah I think I think I'm very a big fan of the premier in, do, in having made this step. People said, "Why do we need it? we know what to do but he, he knew that you, 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 it, the system is so debased that it needs a public consensus, and not just more money. It needs probably, they spent about nearly one and a half billion on mental health care in Victoria each year, but that only covers 1% of the population, 3% have serious mental illness. So it needs to be 4.5 billion that needs to be spent. So that's a huge amount of money, mm-hmm. but you don't want it in just more of the same. You want it totally redesigned. The only way to get that is with the Royal Commission. There will be an interim report by the end of the year. I'm not a commissioner, I just chair the advisory committee for it. Um, But I know the Commissioners are are, are absolutely clear there has to be a major reform here. It's a once in a generation opportunity Um, and uh, the final report I think will be probably towards the end of next year. But I think it's the best chance we've had for, you know,
1: genuine reform in mental health for for decades, many decades. If you've been wondering about the mental health effects of COVID-19, please go to to headtohealth.gov.au. New episodes of Anything But Square are released every Wednesday, and we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and sign up to our newsletter at fedsquare.com. Take care, and we'll see you next Wednesday.